we've come to the first Sunday of a new year. Amazing, 2021. I wonder if you can even remember what you were doing and thinking uh, a year ago, January. So as 2020 began, uh, many of you were here. The website says that Jed Campen preached on Psalm 73. It's always dangerous to ask if you remember even what a preacher preached last week. <laughs> Did you have goals for 2020? Did you have plans? wonder if you made New Year's resolutions. Maybe diet and exercise. Maybe Bible reading plans. Maybe you were hoping to do some things with family and friends. I think anytime that we look back and reflect on our lives, uh, there's an interesting comparison between expectations and reality, isn't there? I mean, many of the, the Christmas cards that we've gotten just this past couple weeks uh, reflect on the, the unexpected of 2020. I mean, so many things were canceled in the year gone by. Trips and reunions and conferences, sporting events. So much unexpected. I mean, if you had told me in January 2020 that a year later I'd be living in Arlington, Virginia, I would not have believed you. Uh, aside from the fact that I grew up outside the Beltway and never planned on living inside the Beltway, this is not even the right continent for us. Not surprisingly, Wikipedia's 2020 page is decidedly negative about the year gone by. This is what it says in the opening paragraph. 2020 was heavily defined by the COVID-19 pandemic, which has led to global, social, and economic disruption, mass cancellations and postponements of events, worldwide lockdowns, and the largest economic recession since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Happy New Year. Geospatial World also called it the worst year in terms of climate change, in part due to major climate disasters worldwide, including major bushfires in Australia and the western United States, as well as extreme tropical cyclone activity affecting large parts of North America. And a United Nations Progress Report published in December 2020 indicated that none of the International Sustainable Development Goals for 2020 were achieved. Well then. Maybe you resonate with the way a friend signed off a group email this week. Happy New Year, y'all. Good riddance to 2020. Friends, I think so much depends on what we're expecting, doesn't it? When we talk about what we're expecting, we're talking about the future. The future is so important to us. Oh, for just a little reliable information about the future. I want to know how to plan. I want to know how to prepare. How to be mentally ready for what's out there. The future is so important to us. And that's why Jesus spoke so much about it. Jesus thought so too. He was constantly trying to prepare his disciples for the future. As we look at the Gospel of Matthew this morning, I was thinking about of the five major discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. The five major sermons we could think about it as. The first four end with Jesus talking about the future. You could remember the, the Sermon on the Mount where he, he speaks about whether you are, are going to build your house on the sand or on the rock of his words. But there's a storm coming in the future that will make it clear where you've built. All of his first four discourses begin end talking about the future. And the fifth one that we're going to look at this morning and Lord willing next week is all about the future. 
So important for us to know how to face it, how to prepare, what to expect. I think it's just what we need as we start off this new year. How can you and I prepare for the future, for 2021? Let's consider that this morning by turning in our Bibles to Matthew 24. It's an amazing and challenging text. We'll we'll try to break up the chapter in two, as I said. But I want to set the context by reading the first three verses initially, and then I'll give you the main idea of the sermon and jump into an outline. But but look there at chapter 24 of Matthew, verse 1. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. So the setting here, can you picture it? It's Jesus and his disciples walking out of the temple. He's been uh, speaking and and preaching in the temple for several days now. After his triumphal entry. But they're heading out of the temple complex and out of Jerusalem. Uh, They they would have walked down into the Kidron Valley. And then up the the Mount of Olives. uh, Where they could have an impressive view of the city. Uh, The disciples have have made this comment to Jesus that the stones of the temple would have been amazing. And for uh, those that grew up mostly in rural environments, they're marveling at the temple when Jesus makes this prediction that not one stone is going to remain upon another. Uh, This is a prophecy of what would be fulfilled about 40 years later in 70 AD when there would be a Jewish revolt against Roman rule, began in 66, and then ultimately the Roman general Titus would come and crush that revolt and destroy Jerusalem. There's a a Jewish historian named Josephus, records in great detail the incredible battle that the rebels put up against overwhelming odds, and then the resulting uh, famine and fire and horrific slaughter when they're ultimately defeated. Uh, The population of the city would have been swelled at that time for Passover. Josephus estimates that as many as a million people were killed when the city fell. Well, we can picture Jesus and the disciples, as I said, walking out of the Temple Mount. They're up on the other side, the Mount of Olives. And he receives this question from the disciples. Tell us when these things will be. So the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, when will that be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, as they ask this, you can see that the disciples thought that these two events were were one. Jesus in his uh, coming discourse is going to help pull those two things apart. The destruction of Jerusalem is not going to be immediately followed by Jesus appearing in power at the end of the age. Uh, Keep in mind for the disciples, they don't understand what they're going to understand just a couple days later after his death and his burial and then his resurrection. They don't understand as much as they're going to understand after Jesus spends time talking to them over 40 days. Uh, They're not going to understand now as much as they understand after he ascends into heaven and an angel tells them that he's going to return in the same way. So their understanding is unfolding. But Jesus is going to speak to us about this gap 
this era that you and I currently live in called the church age, in between the first and second coming of Jesus. Now, before we jump into kind of unpacking the passage, I want you to look down in verse 34 of the chapter. Look at verse 34. Because I think it's important as we interpret it. Uh, Jesus says there, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So I take that to mean from verse 4 through verse 34, everything that he talks about has some reference in the first uh, generation after his uh, death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, But as we read through it in just a moment, you're going to sense and feel that he's speaking about things beyond that as well, things that are in our age and things that are yet to come. Uh, And I think the, the best way of thinking about biblical prophecy is that it often has multiple horizons of fulfillment. Uh, my illustration for this is driving out west. We used to drive to, to Colorado, to Fort Collins, Colorado, every other summer. And if you're driving through Kansas and eastern Colorado, which is extremely boring, by the way, uh, you end up being able to see the Rocky Mountains from over 100 miles away, which is just incredible. But as you see what's called the front range of the Rocky Mountains, uh, it looks like the mountains are all in a row to you. Or at least you can't tell that there may be dozens of miles in between mountain peaks. Or sometimes you might be seeing a peak, and then a peak beyond it, and then a peak even beyond that. I think that that's a good illustration for us to to think about biblical prophecy. Uh, Often there's a fulfillment originally in the life and times of the the prophet who spoke it. Uh, this, This happens with many of the Christmas songs we sang just these past couple weeks. Think about a prophecy like Isaiah 7:14, a virgin shall be with child, or Micah 5:2, that you Bethlehem are no means least among the tribes of Judah, but out of you will come a ruler. Well, if you go back and read those prophets, you, you quickly realize that there would have been some fulfillment in that time. But of course, it's also pointing to the incarnation of Jesus many centuries later. So keep that in mind as we read Jesus' words. You'll hear him give specific counsel to these disciples about their generation and also things that point beyond to the time when we live. So I'm going to read the entire text and then we'll pull some lessons from what Jesus says. So Matthew 24, I'll begin reading in verse 4. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Well, if you're taking notes, here's one sentence that I think summarizes this text. Jesus prepares his disciples to endure hardship as they wait for his return. Jesus prepares his disciples to endure hardship as they wait for his return. I want to consider five ways that Jesus prepares his disciples here to endure hardship as they wait for his return. First... Jesus warns us not to be led astray by false teachers. Jesus warns us not to be led astray by false teachers. Look again there at verse 4. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Now, people claiming to be the Messiah did indeed arise, especially in the tumultuous days leading up to 70 AD. And we've seen this many times in history, right? The largest cult in China is called Eastern Lightning. They believe very sincerely and very fervently that Jesus has returned and is a woman living in Henan right now. That is what they teach. It's a very aggressive cult. So this really happens and people really are led astray. But but not just false Christs. Look down at verse 11. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So these are people claiming knowledge of the future and teaching false things. Notice again that it says they will lead many astray. These are professing Christians who are led astray. It's an interesting phrase, led astray. It means to be guided in the wrong direction. Here, come this way. You may remember the old old children's story, Pinocchio. The nine-year-old boy on his way to school 
and he, he meets some of the lost boys who say, look, there, there's an amusement park over here. It says Pleasure Island. And they, they lead him away from school and to the, to the amusement park. The thing about false Christs and false prophets is that they don't tend to announce themselves, do they? Initially, they coax. They sympathize as they gently lead you in the wrong direction. And the thing about us as human beings is that we seem to have this tendency to overtrust our own discernment. We also seem ever ready to settle for temporary pleasure over delayed gratification. So friends, for us to take this warning means realizing that being led astray begins simply by listening uncritically to the wrong voices. The the books you choose to read are not innocuous. Neither are the TV shows you watch or the podcasts you listen to. They all come with messages, good or bad. The people you invite into your inner circle have a huge effect on you. Just a word to teens and young people here. You're in the process right now of deciding what voices you are going to listen to. Who are going to be your intimate friends? Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to trust? You should do this with care. The people who tell you the truth and encourage you to do what is right are worth more than a thousand likes on Facebook. You need to realize this. The reason good pastors beat the drum for Bible reading in their churches isn't so that you can prove that you're a good Christian. You know that when you believe the gospel of grace, that there's nothing that you do or need to do to earn points in the Christian life. There's no reward ceremony for those of you who finished the, the Bible reading challenge from this past fall, right? I don't think so. There's no reward ceremony. Pastors do that because they want you to be filling your mind with the truth. They want to crowd out those other voices and then give you discernment to listen well to the voices around you. They are being like Paul who said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So friends, in 2021, resolve to wean yourself off of that which distracts and cultivate your thirst for the pure milk of God's word. It's your sustenance and your discernment. So don't be led astray. That's the first way Jesus prepares us. But there's a second way here that Jesus prepares us to endure. And that's that he counsels us not to be alarmed. Look down again at verse 6. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of the birth birth pains. First time parents almost always go to the hospital too quickly, don't they? I mean, I remember Megan's doctor telling us that we were probably going to go to the, the hospital too soon. But we listened, and then we did. Uh, we spent a very uncomfortable 24 hours in a hospital in Shanghai. Uh, you have to be patient through the birth pains. Well, Jesus says that when you see cataclysmic stuff happening in the world, don't be alarmed. He doesn't mean don't care. He doesn't mean don't do what you can to help and serve. But he does mean don't be alarmed. And this might be one of the ways in which Christians can stand out the most in the middle of a pandemic. 
of all people, we should be the least alarmist. Because we know the future and we know who holds the future. You know that phrase, keep calm and carry on? It's an old uh, World War II motivational poster. It's like the most popular meme and uh, thing to turn into t-shirts and mugs and that sort of thing. But how do you keep calm and carry on from a secular materialist point of view? I mean, what is there in, in the worldview around us that means you should keep calm and carry on? I was listening to a podcast this past week about the week of March 11th. I, I wasn't here. I don't know how big a deal this was here in America. I was, I was in Shanghai. But, but it, was the, it was the week that the NBA canceled their season. Uh, and this podcast did a great job of kind of climbing into the, the mindset of the, it was um, uh, the Utah Jazz team and, and Rudy Gobert, their center, had tested positive for the coronavirus. But th- they were about to tip off a game. A- and everybody was trying to figure out what was going to happen. Uh, the NBA decides to cancel it, and then the, the, the season is canceled. And they have all these little tidbits, like people are checking their phone in the stadium. 24,000 people have shown up. And... And Tom Hanks had just announced that he and his wife in Australia had contracted the virus. So that caused people to kind of, the the people in the video said, uh, that's when things got real in America. Um, And they they were worried that there was going to be a stampede out of the the stadium, so they didn't know how to announce it. And then um, the health department shows up in hazmat suits to test the Utah Jazz. But anyway, it's fascinating to me. I'm into the NBA. Um, But as I was listening to it, and the the announcers were describing their fear, the players were describing their fear, the people in the stands were describing their fear, and I was thinking, being afraid just makes you human. It just makes you human. We, We all have fear. The question is, what do you do with your fear? And do you have anywhere to go? What's the foundation of keep calm and carry on? I mean, if you're here this morning and and you're not a Christian, I'd ask you that question. Where do you go with your fear? When someone says stay calm, it might behoove you to ask why. Why should I stay calm? Don't be alarmed. Well, maybe I should be alarmed. What a Christian believes is that our biggest problem is not any earthly crisis that we could face. It's not viruses or cancer, any health issue. It isn't political. It's not the change of an administration or or new policies that are coming down. It isn't relational. It's not family strife or office problems. It's not related to our careers. No, a Christian knows that these are all as nothing compared to the much bigger problem that we have offended the law and the justice of a holy God. A God that will hold us accountable for our sin. But, but, this judge of all people in his mercy has made a way of salvation available to us. He sent his only son Jesus to die on a cross to take the penalty and the punishment for sin that you and I deserve upon himself. So that if any of us will repent of our sins and trust in him, we are forgiven. Our biggest problem is done away with. 
So it isn't that the Christian no longer has any problems in this life. Far from it. It's just that the greatest problem has been solved. So the other problems can be faced without the overwhelming sense of alarm that we would otherwise have. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I think one application point for us here is that we should begin our days with prayer. Do you begin your day with prayer? Do you begin your day committing the burdens of the day to come to the Lord? One of the benefits of doing that is that it forces you to speak to God about your anxieties. And if you're going to pray in Jesus' name, it it forces you to remember that gospel that we just talked about. To remember that your greatest need has already been met in Christ. Brothers and sisters, resolve to begin your days this week in prayer. So Jesus prepares us secondly here by saying, don't be alarmed. But I want us to notice a third way that Jesus prepares us. Jesus urges us not to let our love grow cold. Jesus urges us not to let our love grow cold. Look at verses 9 through 13. Uh, They describe their tribulation. Another word for adversity or difficulty. Uh, And notice that there is a tribulation coming from the outside in these verses. So there's delivering up of Christians, presumably to the authorities who kill some of them. This is happening in some parts of the world even today. There is a being hated by the nations for Jesus' namesake. Often because Christians are misunderstood, they are are despised and hated. In this culture, I think Christians have largely forgotten this. I think we long too much for approval from the surrounding society. Well, Jesus says, don't expect approval. Quite the opposite. But there's also tribulation coming from inside here, isn't there? Verse 10 speaks of those who will fall away and betray and hate one another. In the midst of that, false prophets are working to lead some astray. I think this tribulation from inside is much more difficult to bear. It reminds me of my first year of ministry in China. We had been preaching the gospel on a college campus and had about 12 um, students that had come to faith in Christ, professed, professed faith in Christ. Well, one of them decided that our motives were not good and, and basically betrayed us and took some of the, the new believers with him. It was one of the most painful crosses that we had to bear, a crushing blow in those early years. The tribulation from outside, tribulation from inside. And then look at verses 12 and 13. I think we have something of a conclusion here when it says, because lawlessness is increased, so because sin has increased both externally and internally, the the love of many will grow cold, but he who perseveres to the end will be saved. What does it mean here for love to grow cold? I think love refers both to love to God and love for others. The whole Christian life can be summed up by love, can't it? But why would an environment of hardship and tribulation cause the love of many to grow cold? Sometimes in Scripture, we're we're taught the opposite. Uh, Romans 5, we're told that suffering can have the effect of producing endurance and character and hope. So why the difference here? Well, the difference has to be faith, right? Suffering viewed through the lens of faith increases our love for God and others. Our life is a mess, but but we believe that God is working things together for his glory and our good. And we cry out, God, this is hard, but thank you for saving me. 
Thank you for the hope of heaven. Well, in an opposite sort of way, a creeping unbelief has a chilling effect on our love. We, we start to interpret tribulations in life as ominous, signaling that we are forgotten or abandoned or alone, and our love can grow cold. I'm reminded here of Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, where he said, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Love can be abandoned. It can be left behind. It can grow cold. So what do you and I do if we feel like our love is growing cold? It makes me think of marriage counseling situations where there's a coldness that you can sense as the counselor in the the relationship. And and you try to point the couple back to an earlier time when, when there was life and there was warmth. Try to help them remember where that came from. Do you remember how you used to talk at length about the events of the day together? How you used to take an interest in what the other person is interested in? How how you used to invest time and energy in the marriage relationship? And, and, And you try, in getting them to remember that, to urge them to go back there. To, to do those things that you did at first. Well, you know, those are Jesus' very next words to the church in Ephesus. Uh, he, he says to them, repent and do the works you did at first. Those are good words to us. Brothers and sisters, he hear Jesus urging you and I the same way. Remember when Bible study had a vigor and an energy in it? When you used to turn conversations to spiritual things? When you were eager for ministry opportunities? When you planned times of prayer? When it was a joy for you to give yourself to the life of the local church? Go back there. Do that again. How can you fan into flame love for God in the new year? So Jesus prepares them thirdly by urging them not to let their love grow cold. Well, a fourth way that he prepares them is that Jesus calls them to persevere in faithfulness. Jesus calls us to persevere in faithfulness. Look again at verse 15 and following. We get many of the specific instructions that will need to be followed by the disciples when the destruction of Jerusalem was imminent. So this abomination of desolation, this abomination that causes destruction... This is language from the prophet Daniel. Uh, He pointed to a future act in the temple that would provoke God to bring destruction. And there's actually a pattern there in the Old Testament. You may remember the sins, for example, of Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Uh, They were sinning in the temple. They were were, uh, profaning the offering of the Lord. and, And God brought judgment against them in the form of the Philistines or or then fast. Fast forward to Jeremiah's temple sermon where he tells Israel that judgment is coming because of their idolatry in the very temple. So this this recurring pattern of Israel committing flagrant idolatry in the presence of God in his own house. And then as a result, Yahweh leaving the house and sending the Gentiles to destroy it. Well, Jesus is saying that one last time this is going to happen. When the judgment is imminent, the Christians, Jesus is telling them, are to flee. The instructions here make the urgency clear. Don't go back for your cloak or your possessions. Just go. 
When he says uh, pray that it's not in winter, that's because it's the rainy season when the roads become muddy, difficult to travel. Pray that it's not on a Sabbath, probably because you could obtain no provisions for your journey. You can imagine how difficult such a flight would be for pregnant women or nursing mothers. And then again, the warning goes out about false Christs and prophets, which will be active in those days. Times of crisis are ever seized upon by those who would lead others astray. So Jesus tells them it's essential that they not listen to them, but just listen to him. That's what he says in verse 25. See, I have told you beforehand. And then verse 27 is important to teaching to us as, as clear teaching on the return of Christ at his second coming. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You won't be able to miss it. Just as lightning lights up the sky from east to west, so you will see when Jesus returns. Don't worry about it being secret. Jesus in this section is telling them that they're going to need perseverance. Hardship is inevitable. As one commentator put it, sustained faithfulness is the only remedy to swirling disaster. Sustained faithfulness is the only remedy to swirling disaster. Well, how does this intersect our lives, friends? This great tribulation that Jesus speaks of is in some ways unique. Verse 21 says it's worse than any has come before and will come later in some ways. And all that we can read about what happened around 70 AD is truly terrible. But you and I are just as much in need of perseverance, aren't we? We are just just as much in need of facing down hardship of hearing the Master tell us, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We're just as much in need of hearing Paul's message to new believers, through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. You and I need to hear Jesus telling us, see, I have told you beforehand, you have need of perseverance. So that's the fourth way that Jesus has prepared us. By telling us, reminding us that we need perseverance in faithfulness. Well, fifth and finally, Jesus prepares us by reminding us that he is in charge of history. Jesus reminds us that he is in charge of history. We we talked in the beginning about these two horizons of fulfillment. And that's really useful as we consider a couple of the verses here. Verse 14 When he says the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I think that this had a fulfillment in the apostles taking the message of a crucified, buried, and risen Savior all over the the known world in that generation. But it also points to the worldwide spread of the gospel that's ongoing today, so that as the book of Revelation pictures it, there will be people from every tribe, language, people, and nation that will stand before the throne of God on the last day. And in verse 29 through 31, I think we also have these two horizons of fulfillment. The language of sun and moon being darkened, stars falling from heaven, and powers of the heavens being shaken. This is language typical of apocalyptic literature where regime change is described as cosmic upheaval. The sign of the Son of Man appearing in heaven with power and glory uh, may sound like the second coming, but it too has a first century meaning. You may remember Jesus standing before the high priest and saying, From now on, 
you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So there's a sense in which the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem signaled the vindication and the enthronement of Jesus. Israel rejected the true Messiah, the true temple, the true mediator between God and man. And 70 AD was then a sign of God's judgment on them for this. Verse 31 speaks of the gathering of the elect, all those that the Lord will call from all the corners of the earth. That work began in that age and continues even now as we gather this morning. But of course, these verses also point to the last and final coming of the Son of Man and the gathering of his people together. And Jesus wants us to be ready for that. He uses an illustration of the fig tree in verse 32. The fig tree loses its leaves in winter, as many of our trees do here, but that's not normal for most trees in Palestine, and then begins to bud in late spring. So just as they could use the fig tree as a marker that summer is around the corner, they were to use the events that he described as a signal for what is about to happen. And that, as verse 33 says, he is near. He is at the very gates. He could return at any time, even today. Here's the question I want us to think about. What effect would these words have had on a pe- people facing hardship? What effect would these words have on a pe- people facing tribulation? There would have been the practical help of knowing what to expect and how to avoid danger and how to persevere in faithfulness. But over and above would be the reminder to them that Jesus is in control of everything that happens. He predicts it. He describes it. He assures them that the gospel will triumph. The mission of God will succeed. And that in the end, he will certainly come. He's standing at the gates ready to come for them. Friends, this is our great assurance too this morning. And as we look out on a year to come. The fact that we don't know the future doesn't mean that it is unknown to God. Quite the opposite. The fact that things seem out of control, uncertain, doubtful, does not make them so. But even more amazing than that, he's ordering the future to care for and to provide for his people. Did you notice that little phrase there in verse 22? For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The elect means those chosen by God, those that he is working to save. It means those who, by his grace, believe in him. Well, everything that is going on is being ordered for their sake. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that the God who has made a way of salvation for you is also ordering all things in your life so that you could be with him in glory? All things work together for good for those who love God and were called according to his purpose. So Jesus is in charge of history. That's good. Jesus is committed to his people. That's even better. This is reliable information about the future. So what can you and I expect as 2021 unfolds? Well, Jesus wants to prepare us to endure hardship as we await for his return. We shouldn't be led astray by false teachers. We shouldn't be alarmed. We shouldn't let our love grow cold. 
We should persevere in faithfulness. And above all, we should remember that Jesus is the Lord of history. And he's the Lord of our lives, too. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're so thankful for how good you have been to us in Christ. And we pray that you would increase our faith this morning, even as we come to the table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.